The Sampras Agassi rivalry peaked in 95 with their battle for supremacy as the two best players in the world. Anacon vividly recalled that period and his recollections of the build-up to the U.S. Open final was particularly sharp. He said Agassi had just been smashing everybody all summer and Pete at the Open basically said, not so fast. This is the final of the U.S. Open. I'm not everybody. Okay, so this is a quote from an upcoming book uh, by Hall of Fame writer uh, Steve Flink on the life and times of Pete Sampras. It's called Greatness Revisited. It hits, hits the shelves, Amazon, and all the marketplaces September 1st. I have the honor of uh, uh, reading the book to plan a podcast with Steve, who's been such a good supporter of our uh, Small Tennis with an Accent podcast. So it's with an absolute honor. Uh, I welcome Steve Flink back to the podcast, and we'll be discussing uh, the reasoning behind the book, the timing of the book, and some of the legendary anecdotes and stories, and of course, the legend of Pete Sampras. Welcome back to Tennis with an Accent, Steve. Thank you, Saqib. It's great to be with you again. I always enjoy coming on your podcast, and I know how how much passion you have for this game, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion about Pete Sampras and the book that I just wrote about him. No, ex- exactly, and, and we, we've definitely talked about this, uh, but now, since we are recording a show here... So, just for the listenership here, uh, how was this book set in motion? Uh, when did you decide to write about Sampras? Was it something you had in the backlog of your mind for a long time? Uh, please uh, share uh, the entire Greatness Revisited story with Tennis with an Accent. Well, I would say the, the book was born in a way, even when he was still playing toward the end of his career, I always had it in the back of my mind that I would love to someday write a career biography about him. And it just happened that the timing was so perfect here. I mean, he did an autobiography that came out about six years after he retired. And so there had to be some distance from that. But that's been about 12 years now. And so this was ideal timing, especially with this golden era of of Djokovic, Federer and Nadal and Pete being too easily left in the shadows, somewhat unfairly, given what he did across the 1990s and beyond. So. I just thought this was ideal timing, and I was delighted to have the opportunity to put this book out, and now here it is. No, and I couldn't have put it uh, better myself, what you just said. Uh, it's unfair sometimes life takes its own strange course, and not one, two, but three guys have uh, surpassed his uh, all-time major tally. But even though we all believe numbers tell a very big an overall picture, but then you have to live through a particular era because each era is different, and that's why... Uh, some this book was a breeze for so many parts because uh, a lot of this happened on my watch as a fan and a lot of those memories came back but then there was a lot of detail that I was not privy of and that's why you know if you're a Sampras fan if you're a 90s fan if you're an Agassi fan if you're a Becker fan this book is for you because there's a lot goes on in this book so let me just get you know going I'm excited I have a lot of questions so we all know Sampras and Pete Fisher you know that uh, that whole partnership made him switch from a two-hander to a one-hander and rest is history. But the surprising part was how Sampras viewed his two-hander according to, you know, the actual quote from the book that it was as good as Michael and Agassiz. So that's a surprise to me. So he had that good of a two-hander. Did you yeah, discover he, that while uh, interviewing him? <laughs> yeah, he felt that. I think he put it a little a little more modestly than that, but he thought it was a very good shot. And Chang certainly thought, Chang raved about the two-hander which is why Chang made the case 
that he believed that Pete should, in his mind, he could have stuck with it and maybe added the one-handed slice a la Mats Wielander and, and still had an enormously successful career. We'll never know. I think Pete's argument is that as an athlete, he was really much better off in the transition game and certainly in coming up to the net and executing the volleys that he would have, the, the one-hander was going to be greatly to his benefit. And I think the results more than back him up with the 14 majors and the six years in a row at number one and being the kind of dynamic athlete that he was and with that underrated mobility I, I think the one-handed backhand served him remarkably well over the years even though that shot was not his strength Saqib as you know but it was it was so much more a, a part it so much more uh, important for him to have that as, as an all-court player as a servant volleyer it gave him more flexibility and it made it much easier for him to get up to the net. No, true. And then uh, maybe my excitement got in the way. And you're right. You know, Sampras put it a lot more modestly than <laughs> I, you know, uh, tried to relay it. But I think, again, what I was trying to say, which I didn't say, it was as good as Stroke in their developmental years. It's not to say that his two-hander would have been Agassi League or, you know, Chang League if he had turned pro with it. But I think during the formative years, because, you know, the game changes and they all learn their craft and evolve. So, so that's the... Uh, let me sorry. interrupt you a second. Who knows, though? You make an interesting point. Who's to say he's 14 when he makes the switch? And if he had stayed with it, we will never know. But it could well have been maybe somewhere in between Chang and Agassi. Who's to say? it? But it would... It clearly was a, a very sound stroke. And Chang was really, Chang would be the one to know. He stood 78 foot, feet away on the other side of the net yep. playing Pete Sampras in junior matches. So he would definitely know. And I was very intrigued by the effusiveness with which he discussed the Sampras two-hander. Sure. The idea is not to give everything Chang said. That's why the book is there. But uh, Pete did mention in the book and you and I have talked about it, I think, a month ago when we were doing the Wimbledon uh, retro historical episode. Uh, he said, you know, maybe somewhere in the way the switch did compromise a French, but there's no way to know how, you know, that would have played out. So was there any detail that you know more uh, in your conversation with Sampras that, you know, his inability to master uh, the Roland Garros championship, you think? Was that ever like an afterthought that had he stayed with two, two-hand two backhand, maybe the outcome would have been different? I mean, he mused a bit about that. And Robert Lansdorp, one of his boyhood coaches, spoke about that. And Lansdorp was, like Chang, was extremely enthusiastic about the Sampras two-hander. And he felt that Sampras would have sacrificed nothing at all and that Pete would actually have won all those seven Wimbledons nevertheless and added a French or two. He thought he definitely would have won the French. That's well. That, that's fascinating speculation, but only that. Uh, Pete didn't go into it that deeply himself, or really. He just felt that over the long run, the, with the way things played out, he just had no regrets whatsoever about making that change. So it was it was a nice way to spend some early parts of the book was reflecting on that topic. And you talked to a lot of former players, some of his rivals, some of his seniors, and even the current uh, world number one, Novak Djokovic. So share some of uh, uh, the excitement, you know, while you were preparing the book and the interaction you did with all these legends and important figures of the sport. Anything that stands out for the listeners here? 
Well, I just think that there was that the, what stood out was that the the immense respect all of his peers had for him. That with the passage of time, it has not been diminished in the least. And uh, I just think they they lauded him so beautifully, uh, one after another. Whether it was Edberg reflecting on the '92 U.S. Open final when he beat Pete in the match that sort of changed Pete's life as a competitor, or whether it was even Isovich who lost to Pete in a couple of Wimbledon finals in '94, '98, or Rafter, who lost the 2000 Wimbledon final to Sampras when Pete won what was then his record-breaking 13th major. I just think of uh, all across the board, Mackinac, who said, as you might have re- recall, Mackinac talking about how when he played Pete in the 1990 U.S. Open, when Pete was only 19, that he maybe underestimated him a bit and, and he was mature beyond his years. And that one of the things that stood out in his mind is that Pete would not let him do his thing. It was a matchup that probably bothered him the most of all the matchups he could think of across his career. So I thought that was a great compliment. I just thought the the uh, the consistency of the remarks from all of the, his fellow competitors in the, how highly they regarded him just came through, just came through constantly every interview I did. And then I would go back into the I never knew when I was going to get some of these people, but I'd go back into a particular chapter and put their remarks in and sometimes go back to Sampras with their remarks to see what he thought of that. It was made the process very enjoyable to have their comments, balance their comments off his and to often get his reaction to what they've had to say, because he's so low key and self-effacing that although he, he expresses a lot of confidence and pride in what he did, he never he never sort of there's no, never anything hyperbolic about what he's saying. He's just very much to the point and clear in what he remembers and how he felt about it. But the others, they they just thought the world of Pete Sampras, the tennis player. No, you're absolutely right. And then um, even from my own memory, I mean, uh, I followed his career very closely. I was such a tennis tennis geek and uh, he was the most dominant player of that time in the 90s. And uh, the book also clarifies uh, for people like who are neutrals, I rooted Sampras for Sampras against certain players, but he was not my absolute favorite, but I enjoyed his game. So there was a, I don't want to say, but from far, we all consume how we wanted to consume a player because the knowledge and information was a little limited than these days. And the book really uh, clears some of my notion that, you know, Sampras was never arrogant in the later years. We'll get to the rafter quote, but even throughout, uh, he, 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 he established, I think, a very consistent, I think, drive and uh, borderline, you know, a young player confidence. And sometimes, you know, I was guilty of thinking that Sampras, you know, it didn't success didn't get to him, but he was a little arrogant and he's far from it. And your book proves those points. And uh, and I would like to go back to the 90 quarterfinal against Lendl, which was changing of the guard in many ways. And in that match, you know, after reading the account in this book, it's pretty clear that even uh, at 19, Sampras, you know, at that fortnight took himself seriously he says Lendl was past his prime but if you read the full context it's not disrespecting Lendl who had actually won a major that year so that that's how I felt I don't know if there's a question in this but again the book did clear uh, a lot of those doubts that I I'm had. Glad, I'm glad it did I'm glad it did because that was certainly the way I always viewed him was he had a lot of humility it, the, in other words he never stopped stepped over the line from confidence to arrogance as some of the other players have in certainly not in my view. And I think it comes through from what the others are saying about him too. 
he 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 understood. He respected them as well, and he never took his success for granted. So I'm glad that that's how you that's what came through to you as you read the book. I'm delighted to hear that. No, and, and exactly. And, the, and, sorry, go ahead. No, well, go ahead. Finish your thought, and then we'll talk about the Lendl match. Because no, you know it, you... it's an extension. And then even after he beats McEnroe following the Lendl win, he says, Agassi was the favorite. I knew I could hang with him. And then he says, in a way, it worked out better for me that I didn't have time to think. And that's kind of a clarity for a 19-year-old because he beats on the Super Saturday McEnroe in the early hours of the evening and then has less than 24 hours as the program was stacked back then. So to me, that was... That showed more about his poise and how he saw the game. And 1990s, long time removed from my memory. I knew the score of the final. I, w- I wanted him to beat Agassi in that match. But uh, yeah, that, that again, the book helps uh, the process and mentally where he was. And uh, I think that was uh, that has to be one of the most iconic wins, beating uh, Lendl, McIndoe, and Agassi back to back. And in this era of the big three, sometimes we don't appreciate that kind of an achievement. That is basically taking you back to, you know, 30 years ago in time. Absolutely. And, and Lendl said to me, as he, as he uh, recalled those three wins, that that's when Pete, he showed him, that showed him what kind of heart he had and what kind of player he was to, to knock off the three of them. Now, granted, Ivan was maybe just past his prime at that stage because, you know, he had been in eight finals in a row at the Open and he didn't make it this time, obviously, and he wasn't quite the player in 90 that he'd been the previous year, but he was still a great player who the Open was a fixture to him. The Open was was probably his favorite major, and he had a Decaturf two court put in, in his home in Greenwich, and just like the Open, and he just loved the conditions out there. And so for him to come from two sets of love down and push Pete into a fifth and not win it, I mean... That's when he found out what 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 kind of greatness he was facing on the other side of the net, and then for Sampras to follow that one, Sakib, and beat McEnroe in four and play maybe ten to fifteen percent better than he had against Lendl, and then to peak and beat Agassi in straight sets, you know, four, three, and two, when Agassi was a heavy favorite, having come off the win over Becker in the semis and having been in the finals of the French earlier that year and having been in the semis of the previous two U.S. Opens. Andre was a, a very clear favorite, as Pete acknowledges, coming into their final. But as you mentioned, and as Pete said in the book, he did he just hadn't had time to think after McEnroe. He basically went back, had his dinner, went to sleep, got up the next day, and there he was at 4 p.m. on Sunday facing Andre Agassi for the title. And it was as if he was just playing another match, not the finals of the U.S. Open, but just another match. It was, it was a phenomenal performance. It, it was indeed. And then... Uh... Uh, the book covers a lot of, you know, the you, you've done a great job of just, you know, giving a reader an idea where Sampras was in each year. So this was a third year turning pro. And uh, uh, granted, he was no Nadal or Becker as a 17-year-old. But this U.S. Open, did this come in a hurry for someone who doesn't know? Or was there enough evidence of Sampras's brilliance? It was just a matter of putting it together. It's a good question. I mean, he was perched just outside the top 10 in the world. He was actually seated 12th. So it shows you that he was certainly a, you know, close to being an elite player, but not somebody that that he he wouldn't have been on many people's list of candidates for, say, the three or four guys outside the top three that could take the title. I mean, and he said himself for me in the book that he, you know, he would have been happy to make the second week 
for round of 16 quarters at that stage, he would have been reasonably happy with that kind of a showing, that kind of a performance. So it was pretty, it was a startling run. And it, it definitely, it caught everybody else off guard and even surprised him in its own way to come up with a string of wins or to, to beat Lendl, who's been in eight straight finals with three titles, to beat McEnroe, who's a four-time U.S. Open winner, and then to beat Agassi, the, 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 you know, the, the rival everybody thought was ready to claim his first major title. And it, w- it was a remarkable run. And, and uh, he just got better and better with each round and, and hit the zone against Agassi. So I, I, I don't think anybody was really prepared for that. And, and, and certainly Pete wasn't himself. He just went out and did his job and didn't let his, his mind was uncluttered. The fact that he, ju- he was just very professional for such a young age to be able to get through that and never, never to sort of react, never to say, man, my God, what am I in the verge of doing? What's going on here? He didn't. He never questioned it. He just went out and played it point by point, match by match, and knocked off three iconic names. And and the evolution is there for anyone. You can go and look at the ATP website, or you can just Google or Wikipedia the records. But the evolution is there. And uh, for the next two years, he doesn't win a major. And I remember the Edberg match, '92 U.S. Open, to me is one of the all-time best, all-time three best tournaments ever. I think that I've seen. It was so competitive from the get-go, and then. Edberg getting the better of Sampras in the end. And Sampras doesn't make any excuses again. That was uh, that's very forthcoming. And then he says, you know, he pretty much had a reflection. He did some soul searching and wanted to, you know, push his limits. And this is what he wanted. And then he became a different guy. So when you were covering that event professionally and then you wrote this book, uh, did 92 U.S. Open Sampras, did you cover anything that you didn't know? already because to me that was pretty important reading the book i didn't know a few things but i just want to hear from the horse's mouth what was your experience of that edberg match now well i did at the time it just it just seemed like two guys who'd been through a lot over the fortnight and sampras had had a match with curry the day before that he won in four in the semis but he was on iv after the match he wasn't really feeling very well i i remember thinking at the time that that was one of the reasons why he maybe had underperformed in some ways against Edberg after winning the first set. In turn, Edberg had won this string of five setters over Krychek and Lendl and uh, and Chang and, uh, and beat them all from a breakdown in the fifth set. So you would think he would have been exhausted. He went five hours and 26 minutes against Michael, the longest recorded U.S. Open match. And, and, I, and I, I just... I remember thinking they're, they're two weary fellows, and Edberg comments on, on this in the book. They, would, they both had to endure a lot physically to get there. So in Edberg's mind, it was the fact that it went to one set all and that it came down to that third set tiebreak. And Pete did not serve out the third set, serving for it at 5-4, very unlike him. And that could have made all the difference if he goes up two sets to one. So the only sign to me, Saqib, was the fourth set, he faded a little. He looked like he was a bit... Um, you know, maybe physically a little bit worn out and mentally down. Uh, and it really came down to just, you know, Edberg won a pretty comfortable four set to finish it off. But it, it didn't look to me like Pete had thrown in the towel by any means. But what he said is in the book and what he had said a few times previously is that he he was disappointed in himself. He felt like he, in a sense, he did give in in a way, didn't give up totally, but he, he was not happy with the way he competed. And then he vowed after that. He was tormented by this. This match bothered him for months. 
and he never really stopped thinking about it. And I don't think until he finally won Wimbledon the next year and uh, for the first time. And I think it served him well in that sense is that it, it, it told him that to be a champion, you've got to reach down and battle and fight harder than he believed he did that day against Stefan. So it's, it, it, he was quite forthcoming about that. Uh, he was indeed. And then uh, let's stay on this match for just another thought. Uh, especially with Edberg uh, as, as his opponent here. Like most great champions, Jordan had to go through the Pistons, and even recently Djokovic had to go through Federer and Nadal. Uh, it's clear Sampras' biggest rival was Agassi, and then he had legendary matches at Wimbledon versus Ivani Savage. Indoors, his biggest rival was Becker. But was Edberg the guy that who kind of uh, made him earn the Wimbledon, even though he didn't play Wimbledon in 93, but uh, two back-to-back losses at U.S. Open final, and then the Australian semi in 93 was pretty bizarre. Sampras had huge leads in sets one and three, and still ends up losing to Edberg in three sets. Did you ever figure out like that, that was maybe uh, Matt, those losses kind of you know became big catalysts of who Sampras was? I know you you spoke to both. Uh, did you see Edberg as that figure in that very short stretch? Yes, I think so. I don't think Pete didn't talk too much, nor did Edberg. We didn't go into too much about that Australian semi, but you're right. There were big leads for Sampras, 4 11 the first set, and I think 5 2 in the third. He should have won at least one of those. And if he won the first set, that match might have been very different. But that being a semi, it didn't have the same kind of lingering, uh, the lingering sense of sadness and, and disappointment and distress that the Open final had the previous year. It just was another example of how Edberg was a kind of player that could bother him in those days with the chip and charge. You know, he, that those were the days when Pete was still staying back often on the second serve, particularly if he wasn't playing on grass. He would do on, on hard courts and the others, he would pick and choose, but didn't come in nearly as often serve and volley on second serves as he would later. So Edberg was able to take advantage of that. He did a lot of chipping and charging. That was his, That was his bread and butter. And plus, sometimes he would sort of, provoke double faults because Pete would know that he was going to employ that tactic. But I don't think that that was psychologically nearly as, as devastating to Sampras as the U.S. Open final. A little irritating because maybe he goes out and beats Courier and wins, a, wins that Australian. So it was dis- disappointing in that sense, but not nearly as much so as the, as the U.S. Open of 92 in the final. No, sure, sure. No, but that was just more like an observation on my part because I remember those matches, but you're right. So, Wimbledon, first one, he clearly you know, has stated many times in the book and in his career that that's one of the special ones, uh, the first time he won Wimbledon. So, as an American, uh, he also clearly says that this was where tennis history was. He loved the Open, but a lot of times he would get bothered at the Open, like the fans are loud and sometimes fans are not paying attention, but that was not the case at Wimbledon. So, to me, that's kind of a statement. A lot of guys like McEnroe, Connors, everybody has valued Wimbledon. But this is like, to me, this is as pure a comment you'll get from, from a Yank. I mean, you are one, you're American, you've covered all these guys. That's the ultimate respect to the ultimate tournament. Yes, yeah, so, you see, I always believed he felt that, which is why I queried him about it for the book. Spent some time getting him to compare the two. Not... And in no way was he knocking the Open. He loved the Open, as he explained, but he felt that the Open was a much noisier place, that the fans sometimes, as you said, didn't seem to be paying full attention. It was more distracting getting in and out of the city. It, it, there, were, there were just things that made it more complicated in his mind. 
And I just think the other thing about it, Saqib, is that the the there was it was like a marriage made in heaven in a way, Sampras at Wimbledon, because they didn't have one of their own. Their last champion had been Fred Perry, who won 34 through 36 among the men, that is. And they waited all the way to Andy Murray's, it turned out, in 2013 to get another men's champions. So in a way, I always felt like they almost adopted Sampras. They really did cheer him on a lot. They came to love him as, he, as the more he collected titles, the more they seemed to like him. And and respect him, and and he would rent a house during Wimbledon, and 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 stay there sometimes, hardly go out for the whole fortnight or beyond, and just stick to his knitting, tend to his knitting, and get to bed early, have his dinner, watch a movie, go to bed, and I think he really loved that routine that he had at Wimbledon, and so that feeling that you're describing that I'm amplifying, it sort of carries into that '93 Wimbledon because he also is now utterly determined to win his second major and find and get going again. 91 and 92 had been frustrating. And now here he was, he wanted to get back on the board again at a major. And what could be more fitting than to play fellow American Jim Courier and here are the top two players in the world, even though Courier was actually seated third behind Edberg because Wimbledon adjusted the seating based on Edberg's prior grass court performances. But Courier upsets Edberg in a way and uh, plays Pete in the final, and Pete beats him in four sets. It, it was probably the most important tournament of his career, I think. And I think he believes the same thing. He said it was more, it certainly meant more in its way than the 90 U.S. Open. It was more important than that. Yeah, and again, the fascinating part that I didn't know, that both Gullickson brothers, uh, of course, Tim was uh, Pete's coach, and uh, Tom Gullickson was uh, helping Courier prepare for Wimbledon, and then... Uh, he said he just enjoyed the final and made the better man win in the end. He said an American's going to win. So that was pretty, you don't know these things. And that's that kind of added an element for me. I thought I knew that 93 year pretty well, but I didn't know the background. Uh, yeah, Tom Gullickson helping Korea. So that was a pretty good anecdote. Yeah, I knew it. I knew some about that. And Tom filled in a few, a few more of the details that was fun to hear. And Tom talking about his own neutrality to Americans. He figured he couldn't go wrong. And he knew Jim very well. He knew Pete very well. His brother, Tim, is coaching is coaching Pete. So it was an interesting situation all around. But I, I, there were a lot of interesting things about that. I mean, Samper said he'd never been more nervous before a match than that one because it was just the, the importance of it and wanting to reestablish himself at the majors and get you know waking up in the middle of the night and waking up again and the edginess it, it you know and and it kind of carried over to the match toward the end he was slumped over a bit I think he was just feeling there were all kinds of things that had built up in his body and his mind and it made it tough to finish it off which he did in four but it was it was definitely a, a pivotal tournament in his career and a pivotal match and uh, very rewarding and carried him really basically through the next five six years. Yeah, and again, uh, let's uh, plan to spend the next five, six minutes in Jim Courier because I learned a great deal about the equation of the two, this Wimbledon final, and then we'll get to that uh, 95 Australian Open match, which uh, the world has talked about. So, again, I was a big Courier fan, so a little biased here, but I would also like to add Sampras Agassi's legendary, the contrast, best returner versus best server, and, you know, nothing to take away from that. But sometimes I felt, being a Courier fan, that, you know, he didn't match up well with Sampras, but their matches were super competitive, and they played a lot of great matches, maybe not for the highlight reel, but I think those matches were intense. And this Wimbledon final, Courier said, you know, he had coming 
he was coming from Roland Garros losing to Bruguera in a heartbreaker of a final. He led 2-0 in the fifth set. And then yeah. uh, he said, had yeah. he won this, because this was Pete was a favorite, favorite. So had he won this, he said this could have altered their rivalry. And that's a very fascinating thought. Not to take anything away from the great Sampras, but this is in the book. So, so talk about Courier. And secondly, how generous was he with his time for this book? Because I see a lot of Courier in this book. He was very generous, as you know, uh, Sagib, because you've done these interviews. Some people can also pack more into a shorter span. Jim is very good at getting right to the point with his remarks. But we had a couple of interviews, one longer one, one shorter one. I'd say we all together, maybe over an hour and 15 minutes or something. But he had told me everything I needed to know in those two interviews, particularly in the first one. And uh, you're right. I thought that was one of the more interesting things to write about in the book was there the way they each talk about the relationship, the respect that Courier had for Sampras, and Sampras explaining that by the time he played Jim in this Wimbledon final with the two of them fighting for these same prestigious prizes, that was very hard to keep the friendship going the way they had when they were younger, because when they were younger, Pete had come to Volatari's, not to train with Nick directly, but to train at the facility, and Jim sort of showed him the ropes because Jim was there, and he was a Floridian, and Pete was a Californian, and they became buddies. They became doubles partners. He was something of a mentor to Pete with old, a big brother, they both called him. They, they both referred to it that way, that Jim was like a big brother to Pete and showing him the ropes in some ways. So, But now here they were in the Wimbledon finals, and, and Pete said how it was impossible, not just tricky, but impossible to keep that same kind of a friendship going because, you know, you're, you both have so much pride and you want the same things, and it's you can't really let somebody into your life in the same way that you had and be calling each other and checking in or playing golf or doing some of the things that you used to do. So I found that quite interesting. Jim didn't necessarily assess it exactly the same way. He didn't feel as much change, but Pete was very clear on that and, and clear that, you know, to this day, they're good friends. But during that period, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy because they were competing and no animosity at all, just more distance. Of course, I mean, you're right, and they're friends and they have access to each other. But I think for folks like myself and whoever lived through that era, uh, you know, your book also uncovered that 95 match in Australia where Sampras had an emotional moment because his coach, you know, was diagnosed with, uh, you know, brain cancer. And then we all know how that played out. And Jim, you know, to eat, to make Pete, you know, because Pete was taking so much time, he was getting emotionally, he was crying between serves. So just to maybe change the environment on on, on on Flinders Park that day, he said something, Pete, we can do it another time. And Sampras, and that's the most fascinating part. I mean, part of me doesn't want to get into it, but at the same time, I want it to be enough. So somebody wants to, I would say it's worth buying the book for that, for those two pages. I mean, not to discount the book, but that is just, uh, that's such an iconic match and how they both viewed and then they're both so classy. Nothing was discussed after that, and that they both relive. And Sampras is more than gracious. He calls, uh, he said, okay, maybe I didn't understand where he was coming from. I'll let you explain that. I mean, you'll do much better than what I'm doing, but I'm getting goosebumps just, uh, you know, having read that. <laughs> then, no, you're, you're describing it very well, and it was, it was very poignant from both ends of the net because they'd been out to dinner the night before because Tim Gullickson, Pete's coach, was about to fly home. They, they, he was diagnosed with brain tumors. He eventually died the next year, far too young. And uh, so they, here they were at a dinner the night before with Todd Martin and a, a few others. And 
It was arranged by Tom Gullickson because it would cheer Tim up before he went back home. And now here they are playing this big quarterfinal at the 95 Australian. And Jim wins the first two sets. And Pete eventually came back to win in five. But it was early in the fifth that a fan yelled out. Pete said he didn't really he didn't really recall so much about the fan yelling out. But whether it was the fan triggering it or, or just something in his own mind, the fan had yelled out something along the lines of do it for your coach. And then Pete did start to cry, as you said. And Jim was worried, as he explained to me for the book, I, I got complete clarification of what Jim was trying to do for the first time. I never really fully understood it until he explained it to me for the book, which I thought was great. And what he was saying basically was, look, I, Pete was having a tough time and, and we, something we, we had, if this match was going to continue, the show had to keep going on the road and I had to do something, either that or he was going to get penalized by the umpire. So he felt that by saying we could do this, we can do this tomorrow. He, he, he and and Jim, and Pete agreed. He said Jim, what Jim said didn't bother it, that didn't disturb me. I wasn't bothered by that. Oh, what irked Pete and what maybe set off some of the tears, but what eventually got him going was he thought the crowd was laughing, the crowd was being sort of mocking, and he didn't like that. But whatever it was, it snapped Pete out of it, and then he got back to business and eventually won that fifth set. And then the two of them are cramping in the locker room after the match, lying down on the training tables and pretty, pretty remarkable. And as you said, Pete said that it was like the pink elephant in the room, that they didn't really ever talk about it. They talked about it through the press. And he, and he thought maybe it was his own. He said, maybe it was my poor communicative skills. But Jim said, I don't think we really I don't think there was anything to talk about. In, in his mind, they're just they had great respect for each other. There was no need to. So interesting to hear the different perspectives, but the bottom line is it was a, it was a match that neither one of them would ever forget uh, because of the surrounding circumstances and what was going on with Sampras's coach. Yeah, that's one of the all-time you know most emotional tennis memories. If uh, anyone has watched that live, it was such a I can say privilege now, but it was a very uh, mixed emotion for even fans. We didn't know what was going on when we were watching that match in India, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, quite surreal uh, having well, some, some closure on that issue for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I remember thinking at the time, why is Jim doing that? It seemed almost, it's, it came off at that moment to me watching it live. Why is he doing this? Why, it seemed insensitive when in fact it really wasn't. In the end, it wasn't. In the end, it, it, it's a, probably a good thing that he did what he did and said what he said because Pete was able to come out of that deeply emotional state and yeah. get back into into the match playing environment and 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 compete again and yeah. and it was, it had been very tough for him for a few moments to do that so it, it it was enlightening for me to speak to both of them to have them both travel back to that moment in time indeed i mean while the teenager in me back then wish korea hadn't said that because Sampras started serving bombs after that so <laughs> I wanted Jim to win that match, but I guess it is what it is. <laughs> so, yeah. no, I mean, again, uh, so so much rich detail around that uh, topic. And uh, let's move on to him winning, you know, the third Wimbledon uh, the same year uh, over Boris Becker. And then uh, this is where I think he solidifies. He himself said, you know, the crowd, you know, knew me, but each year passing, they knew me better. And this third time was okay, you know, this guy's good and, you know, they kind of respected him and I think it became his turf and Becker himself said, I guess, you know, I've given the keys to him or something like that. Yeah, and they had that great moment, you know, during the match where he, 
uh, Pete did something that he didn't do very often, where the crowd had reacted in in, in sort of a uh, almost robotic robotic fashion, barely acknowledged a backhand passing shot that Pete had just hit, and he raised his palms up in the air as if to say to the crowd, "Hey, what? <laughs> that was a great shot. Show me a little support here." And and he said, as he said in the book, "Show me a little love." And it was a nice connection between him and the crowd. And they started applauding effusively and they actually applauded more and more as the match went on. He could do that from time to time in certain matches to get the crowd around to him with just a small gesture like that. Because as he said, they, you know, they didn't expect it. And that, that showed a side of his personality that they didn't always see. And he proceeded to come back from a set down against Becker and destroyed him in four sets with, one of, with a really first rate performance on that center court to get that third crown in a row. Yeah, I mean, that day his numbers were pretty amazing and nobody had made Becker look so uh, second tier, you know, on, on center and court. Becker, and Becker had just come off the big win over Agassi, who he hadn't beaten in nearly seven years. He had last beaten Agassi in uh, six years, I should say, in the 89 Davis Cup all the way up to this Wimbledon, you know, of, ni- of 95. And so that was a long stretch of losing. And, and Becker, I, on record, on the press, said that was his biggest, uh, best win at Wimbledon. So yeah, that he kind did. of magnifies the performance Sampras put on that July 9th Sunday. It does. You're right. And the thing was that Andre had led Boris by 6 2 4 1 up two breaks in the second set. He was killing him before Becker managed to rally so gallantly to win in four sets. So, yes, it. And interestingly enough, though. Pete, very matter-of-factly, without being disrespectful to Boris, because he talks more about him in other matches, too, but he just felt like he was a little quicker, a little better at the net. There were certain advantages he thought he had against Boris, so he felt comfortable, so he didn't panic when Boris won the first set in a tiebreak. Becker played a great first set. They both played a great first set, but there was no sense of, of panic when Sampras going down a set against someone even as dangerous as Boris Becker in the Wimbledon finals. On those last three, he really... He really took care of him very comfortably. Yeah, and, and I remember you know, all th- three matches against uh, Sampras as Becker at Wimbledon. Uh, Becker started going for more on his second, and as a result, had a lot of double falls because that's the pressure he was feeling that he had to go big even on second because Sampras was pretty much there was no distinction on the two deliveries. And even in the book, I think the likes of Darren Cahill and uh, who else I think uh, said that Sampras had two first serves, and that was pretty. Yeah. pretty Courier said that actually after that, that was a funny thing from Tom Gullickson where Courier said to Tom Gullickson after the match, you know, how do you beat a guy that's got two first serves? And that that sentiment was echoed by so many players and not just the coach Darren Cahill, but lots of people said that through the years and became more and more the case as Pete's career uh, moved on. It, It was remarkable. There was so little to choose between the two. So little difference, and the velocity wasn't that great a difference either. It could often be 10 miles an hour difference or under. And uh, he just had great faith and belief in that second serve. But you're right. Boris, in his case, he, 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 he wasn't as confident going for bigger second serves himself because he would double fault more than Pete would. Yeah. And, and just uh, going back a little in the timeline to 1990, in the book, I think Michael Chang said, to his brother, I think they were supposed to play in the compact Grand Slam Cup in Munich. And he, at that time, had the better of Pete. He said, yeah, even the court is fast, I can get Pete, no problem. And then he said, something had changed with Pete's ball toss. He could hit the corners, he could just had more variety. This is a Sampras he'd never seen, and Sampras killed him, I think, three, four, and four. And yeah. Chang said that was a turning of turning point of the rivalry. 
And so many times, even in recent years, we've seen Federer being owned by Nalbandian and then Federer turned it around. So many times we don't understand what's going on at these matches. Maybe the edge has been carried over from junior days and then one particular match changes it all. Yeah, you're right. And it's but the funny part about that was Sampras himself and most of us who were really w- followed that rivalry with intense scrutiny and interest felt that the turning point was when Sampras beat Chang at the 93 U.S. Open when he was still trailing 6-2 in the rivalry and they played in the quarters and split the first two sets in tie breaks and then Sampras ran away with the last two, one and one. And that's what most of us thought was the turning point. And, and then Pete looks at it largely that way. But Michael, interestingly enough, pointed to the match you just mentioned in the 90 Grand Slam Cup because he felt that was the first time that up until then he could pick which way Pete was going to go in both the deuce and the ad courts and he, he could read it and he could cheat over to that side and then that all changed. And he's, that's when he saw a very different Pete Sampras. So in his mind, it had actually started then uh, quite a bit earlier. Interesting, again, again to get the different perspectives. But uh, Chang was, was pretty convincing with his argument. Sure. I guess we, Sampras, we'll, uh, we have to talk about the summer of 95. And uh, we are still in 95. The most important, I think, uh, detail for me was the courier detail. There were so many rich details, so many rich anecdotes. But uh, the same Wimbledon, when Agassi was losing to Becker, in his book, that was called The Summer of Revenge. They had to get back at BB for those comments, but then Pete was the obstacle, and that's the quote I read at the beginning from Paul Anacon. And a lot of people in that chapter had weighed on, Brad Gilbert had weighed on him, who was Andre Agassi's coach. He said Pete was the only one guy, if Agassi was still playing his best, who had a shot. And then uh, they had played in Montreal a month prior, and Agassi had one in three. And Agassi came to this tournament on a what is twenty six twenty seven match win streak, and then uh, that the, I don't want to use the word epic loosely, but that first set point is epic in the ninety five final. Those who have not watched it, go watch it when you listen to this podcast. Maybe put it on a pause and watch that point. And uh, yeah, that 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 whole summer I think was so important. There was so much riding, Steve. Uh, Sampras is going for another major. He's the clear the alpha. Uh, player in the house, but Agassi has a point to prove. They both had won one major each, and they come into this heavyweight fight, and it kind of uh, uh, it kind of sent Agassi into a tailspin. Not exactly right away, but I think that match had an impact, and you clearly so, have mentioned that. There was so much riding on that outcome, and what's interesting about it is Andre had beaten Pete in a four-set final in that Australian Open two rounds after the the clash that we just discussed with Sampras and Courier. And uh, that was a four-set win for Andre. And, and, and so he's got the Australian, and then Pete wins Wimbledon. And so this was essentially for number one in the world. But it also would have meant that if Agassi beat Sampras, he would have had beaten him in two Grand Slam finals in the same season. It really could have had some ramifications for the future of the rivalry. And meantime, Sampras, after Wimbledon, didn't do anything special over the summer. He lost that final to Agassi in Montreal. Didn't win any of the summertime hardcore events, but all along, he was thinking about the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open was what mattered to him. While Agassi went on this tear after the Becker loss at Wimbledon, wins the 26 matches in a row, as you said, and that was four titles. And, you know, maybe he overplayed a little bit. We'll never know. You don't you can't plan it. You can't know that you're going to win every tournament. But he did. And uh, again, so that made him the favorite going into that final, but Sampras was the big match player. He peaked in these propitious occasions, and it happened again. 
And as you said, it all kind of swung on set point in the first set when they had this dazzling 22-stroke rally, corner to corner, side to side, and and the kind of rally that Agassi is kind of accustomed to winning. But Sampras being the superior athlete and bearing down on such a big point eventually opens up the court to Agassi pulls Agassi off the court on his forehand side and opens up the court so that Pete can hit the backhand cross-court winner into the open court. And then he raised his arms and clenched his fists, and it was a it was a critical moment. Both players knew it, and Sampras went on and took the second set, and although he lost the third, he came through 7-5 in the fourth. So as so often was the case, he got one crucial break at 5-0 in the fourth and served it out. It was one of the... Probably the most important match they ever played against each other, Saqib, because Agassi went into a pretty bad tailspin for the next couple of years. He did win the Olympics the following year, but no majors. And then 97, he was really wandering and only played the U.S. Open among the majors. And there was a lot of sort of indifference and anxiety in him. And he'd sort of lost his way through that period. He went all the way down to 141 in the world late in that season. So, uh no doubt that the 95 U.S. Open final had uh, enormous consequences for both players. No, it was uh, the heavyweight match of that season, and like you said, a lot was riding on it. Again, we can go so many different topics here, but the other two topics I want to discuss before we, we wrap this conversation is his uh, rivalry with Pat Rafter. And then, uh, you know, the rivalry was... So Rafter was, you know, a few years younger, and Sampras was a very established candidate, a Hall of Famer already, to be honest, back then. And when Rafter beat him in Cincinnati, and then Sampras comes in the press room, and Sampras acknowledged in the book that, you know, he, it was just, you know, that's what happens when sometimes we don't realize these guys walk into these press losses trying to explain a loss when their mind is still at the match, they're so upset. And Sampras said something that uh, was not too kind of a comment. It was funny for some. What is the difference between you and Pat today, they asked, and he said, 10 grand slams. <laughs> and uh, and you had both men talk about that. So if you want to give a little bit of a tidbit, not everything, uh, because that was a very fascinating few years between Sampras and Rafter. And then, of course, Sampras got the last laugh at the 2000 Wimbledon. Uh, but talk about that uh, the testiness and the rivalry. And both are nice guys, both are gentlemen. That was a surprising aspect, that there was a bit of an edge yeah, absolutely. Well, this was the summer of 98. So there was a lot going on in Sampras' mind. He'd won Wimbledon. He was really striving to get that record that meant so much to him, to be number one in the world for six consecutive years, break the record that he had shared with Jimmy Connors. And most years, as you know, the majors were what really were paramount in his mind. Not The ranking would take care of itself. And he wanted to end every year number one, but it wasn't something that he was preoccupied with. This year he was. So he plays Rafter in the final since Cincinnati, won the first set really easily 6-1 and eventually lost it in three sets. And uh, on match point, there was a, a, an overrule on the far sideline by the umpire and it gave Rafter an ace and Sampras was really upset by that and just upset that the match got away. And so, yeah, he made that comment, as he said, and Rafter was saying to me that he, he felt that Pete, he should have been able to give him more credit you know he knew that Pete was the better player and he acknowledged it and he didn't even feel it was a real rivalry he said the real rivalry was Pete against Andre but he felt like the few times that he beat him the four times he beat him he just felt like especially this one in Cincinnati he wanted more credit for it but 
that was not characteristic of Sampras, as I tried to point out. And they, and they both end up complimenting each other, by the way, as you pointed out. And, and Raptor said that Pete was a nice guy. And there was another time when he wrote a there was an article coming out. Raptor had said some things about Sampras and he was concerned that the couple of things he felt were kind of misconstrued or maybe even misquoted by whoever the writer was. And he wanted to explain it to Sampras. And he did. And Pete said to him, look, I. I don't care about that stuff at all. Don't worry about it. And Rafter was relieved. And so it just I just was trying to paint this picture of two two really first rate individuals who there there was a little tension in that period, but as Pete explained, he sat down with them the next year and and apologized and just cleared the air and uh, but it, it it just there were just different mentalities. And I think, you know, he, he normally would have given Pat a, a lot more credit than he did that day. He just was so upset with himself that maybe he needed another 20 minutes before coming in the interview room. And you know what? We we all make mistakes and we all live in the moment. And if he had given credit, we wouldn't have this uh, glorious chapter to talk about 22 years later. So it, it, yeah. is, all, it is all fun and game. So uh, let's yep. wrap this up. Uh, I could have gone to the final act, him winning the Open. I'll leave that for the readers to enjoy that. Uh, whoever's going to dive into this book. But let's talk about the legacy. You've talked to a lot of people from, you know, legends, his coaches, his rivals. What is his legacy? I mean, and what does the man think of himself? And we talked about at the top of the show that not one, not two, three guys have surpassed his major tally, and that too, 18 years after he had retired. That's too recent. So throw throw some yeah. light on the interviews that you talked to others and also what Sampras thinks of where his place is right now in the books. Yeah, I think he feels very content with what he what he achieved, and he knows that he really couldn't have played on any longer than he did. I sort of tried to get at it from the angle of did he wish he could have played on if he would have known that they were these three guys were going to accomplish so prodigiously, would it have would it have altered his attitude and made him play on? But he felt like he had pretty much exhausted every avenue of his competitive drive. It was it was done. It was gone. So. He doesn't have any regrets about that, nor does he have any resent, resentment about what they've done, although he certainly feels like he could compete with them. And that's a, another story, and that's maybe a topic for another day. But the legacy, I think, as you probably read, as you probably noticed, I mean, it's the sportsmanship. It's the way he carried himself through the years. What he's most proud of is the spending what he felt was nearly half of his career at number one in the world, You know, which is pretty good for a 15-year pro career to have six years at, at number one was pretty remarkable to have them in succession. So I think it was that, that you know, the, the fierce competitiveness combined with the sense of fair play and the decency, uh, it, you know, I mean, it certainly contrasted not to no knock on John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors, but Pete was a much, much greater sportsman. And Yvonne Lendl lauded him for that. He said, if, you know, if you're any parent that's going to bring up their kids and they're going to raise them to be like Pete Sampras, they've got a winner. So I just think there were, you know, the, the others, they, they saw him as, as an extraordinary sportsman as well as a great champion. That's what came through to me more than anything else. No, I think exactly. I mean, the, I'm, I'm sure the sentiment is really agreed upon. I see it that way uh, now I, you know, his career has unfolded. And the last thing I would say, by the way, just to add on to that, not so much just necessarily in the legacy chapter, what I tried to get through the message I was also trying to get through in the in the course of recapping all of the key matches in his career is what a what an extra uh, remarkable, sturdy, resilient competitor he was. 
not given enough credit for that because we always have always talked about the talent. But he had he could really compete on those days when when victory was not coming so easily to him. I mean, not everything was going to be like a, a Wimbledon final against Agassi in '99 that he wins three, four, and five. There were there were some tough, fierce, demanding battles that he came out of because of the size of his heart and the depth of his determination. And those those I tried to sort of stress those qualities throughout the book, and I, I certainly hope it came through. No, it did, and I know what match you're talking about. The Karecha match, the Chesnokov match, there's a lot of detail in there. So I encourage, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, again, you don't need my endorsement, but, you know, whoever listens here, uh, the book is uh, definitely a great recollection of, you know, how Sampras, Sampras years were there and then, you know, all the other players who played against him and how he stood tall uh, among his rivals. So, Steve, thank you so much uh, for giving me the opportunity to read this book before it hits uh, you know, the market out there, and I—I uh, I hope I did some justice. I mean, I. Bec- oh, you did a lot. I, of I, I was—I'm—I'm I'm easily reduced as a fan because I get excited when these opportunities present itself, and uh, yeah, uh, I'll cherish this book, and I hopefully uh, have sent the message out there, and people who tune in here will listen and read the book because the book has a lot of value for any fan, Sampras fan, or even the Federer Djokovic fan. Well, I appreciate that very much, and you, you know, I, I was, I knew you would read it carefully and, and, and perceptively, and you've done, done just that, and, and uh, as you could probably, I hope, what all, other thing that came through is it just was a great joy to write it. I, I, I had got a lot of pleasure out of writing it and, and recre, you know, recreating it. It was just, it was, I had lived those years, you know, with, with a lot of intensity and interest and intrigue all of the years of the Sampras career, particularly those prime years. And it was just nice for me to revisit those years, revisit those matches, talk to him about them and talk to his illustrious cast of, of rivals. So I, I, I had a great deal out of, of joy in writing that book. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with another show and kind reminder, greatness revisited, Pete Sampras, greatness revisited, Hits the shelves on September 1st.